I was raised a good Protestant boy, which is uh, a good thing. I mean, as uh, things may go, uh, I was raised uh, first a Methodist and then a United Methodist because we were Methodist until 1968 and the Unifying Conference. And then in 1969, we became United Methodist. Uh, some may question how united. That's a question for another time. Uh, but I have been a good Protestant boy. One of the key symbols of a good Protestant is an empty cross. You have one, notice that we have one here on the table. It is, a, it is a celebration of the resurrection. It is a celebration of the new life. Uh, but uh, one of the things that we miss out on, one of the gifts that is ours to know uh, that uh, we good Protestant boys and girls sometimes miss is the power of the crucifixion itself because there is no Jesus on our cross. It's just something that sits uh, on our tables, it's hung on our walls sometimes. Uh, so about two years ago, uh, in my sacred space at the house, and all, space, all spaces are sacred, let's just be honest, there's no such thing as a sacred versus a non-sacred space. But I have a space where I sit every morning, pray every day, those kinds of things, do my sacred readings, my meditation, centering prayer, all those things. And about two years ago, I purchased for myself uh, a crucifix that hangs there. And every morning I sit in front of that crucifix and I look at Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, I look at the death of a man who we also uh, as people of faith, claim to be the Son of God. We claim to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Eternal. And yet, that same one who was embodied in a person, Jesus, died on a cross. As I've told you before, one of my, perhaps my favorite preaching teacher, Bobby McLean, told me in preaching the black tradition, preaching in the black tradition, a class I took with him in advanced preaching, uh, that there is no Easter without Good Friday. There is no resurrection without a crucifixion. And so that's why we are spending, this is week five, one more week of the crucifixion, and then you get a Good Friday service. Uh, where we are completely focused on the crucifixion, but we're listening for what key players did to make the crucifixion happen, how it happened, what we can learn from those players. Now, today's player is nameless. We don't know the name of that player. And he is, just so you know, the only human being in the Gospel of Mark, the only human being who recognizes Jesus as God's son. Now, you remember Jesus' baptism. This is my, this is my, you know, he hears from the, you know, he hears from the clouds. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then at the transfiguration, when he's on top of a mountain and he starts glowing and Moses and Elijah show up too, that also um, in that, time, 
The clouds open up. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So God says it twice. But the Roman centurion is the only one in the Gospel of Mark who declares that this is God's son. Here is the situation. Jesus has been hanging on the cross all day. Uh, each one of the Gospels focuses on some aspect of what he might have said, what he, was, what he did while he was uh, on the cross, uh, which ones of the words he might have said, you know, my God, my God, why have, uh, why have you forsaken me, is uh, the cry that he makes in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and after he makes that cry, then uh, after, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Essentially, Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I'm reading from uh, Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 37, sorry. Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was God's son. This is our reading for this morning from the gospel. Praise be to God. Jesus gives a loud cry, the curtain is torn, which would have been far away from here. If it was the literal tearing of the curtain, it's too far away from, you know, from where Jesus is being crucified for anyone to see it, who was at the crucifixion. Um, but Jesus cries out, breathes his last. The centurion looks at him, faces him, and looking at him says, truly this man was God's son. Now, I sat with that all week long because, you know, we say that. You know, 2,000 years later, we say that. But we've got a lot of, we've got the resurrection between us and then. Uh, this is Jesus dying on the cross. There is no resurrection at the moment the centurion makes this declaration. It is purely a death. Now, let me say about centurions, they've probably seen a lot of death. And they've probably perpetrated it. In fact... Jesus' death on this cross was the responsibility of this centurion. Uh, a centurion was the commander of a centurio, uh, a century of soldiers. Now, you would think a century of soldiers is 100. It's not. It's 80. And a, cen uh, a centurion is, uh, the requirements were they had to be literate because they had to be able to read the orders that were passed to them. Uh, they were in charge of order among the 80 men. They were the ones that drilled them, taught them to use their swords, made sure they were always ready for battle, that their, uh, that their armor was shined, that their swords were ready and sharpened for any battle at any moment. That was their job. They were the leader, and, and the advancement of centurions was from lower posts, there would be in a legion of troops, somewhere between four and six uh, centuries of, uh, of, of troops. And 
A centurion would rise uh, by moving from, say, the green recruit group of, uh, cent of uh, uh, century up to the, uh, the first veteran uh, group, and then perhaps to the first legion, where the very best, in fact, the, centuri the centurion who was the head of the first legion was was, was third in command of the Roman Empire, uh, of the Roman armies. So centurions were pretty powerful. They were used to killing. Uh, they were used to following orders and giving orders if they're a centurion. And so this man who stood at the, and they were actually fairly well off too. By the time, they were paid well. Their jobs paid them well. Oftentimes when a centurion would retire from the army, he would hire several veterans to work for him, uh, you know, to attend to him and care for his house and that kind of thing. They were not poor by any stretch of the imagination. It was a way to ascend. Uh, centurions had to be 30 years old and have experience. So this is a man who is perhaps and probably seen battle, oversaw Jesus being nailed to the cross himself and would have overseen crowd control uh, and the like while Jesus was dying on the cross. Now, just a little heads up about crucifixion. Jesus died fast for crucifixion. Sometimes people hung on, on the cross for two or three days. It takes a long time to die from asphyxiation when you can't push yourself up to breathe anymore. And that's what you ultimately die from on the cross. He looks at Jesus, who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Breathes his last and dies. And something in the way he dies moves the centurion to say, truly, this is the Son of God. And that's what I sat with. What did he see? A man acquainted with death? A man who brought Jesus to his death? He wouldn't have been the guy to do the nailing unless he liked the nailing part uh, because he's the centurion. He can do whatever he wants. But it would have been men under his command who did the nailing. He would have overseen that and made sure that it all happened correctly. He would have followed orders. What was it about looking up at the cross and seeing a man die that would make the centurion see something different in this death than in the other deaths he might have seen in battle in other places? What was it in Jesus, this last cry is breathing his last and dying. Now, I'm not sure what defines a good death for a centurion in the first century. But I do know that one of the things I'm learning in life is that before I ultimately die and give up this physical, uh, uh, this physical manifestation of myself, 
that I will probably die a number of times. And that in following Christ, he invited me to take up my cross, to die daily, to give up my life, if you will, over and over again. And if you've learned to give up your life over and over again, then that final breathing your last breath is not as big a leap. It's not filled with fear and uncertainty and wonder. It's just another step. And perhaps that's what the centurion saw in Jesus. A man who had come to terms with and peace about his death. Now, let's just be honest. We're not comfortable with death. If you're watching, it's likely you're an American. We do everything we can to hide death from us. We, uh, we do everything we can to appear like we don't age. You know, from uh, injections in our face to plastic surgery, we do everything in power, coloring our hair. I don't care if you color your hair. It doesn't matter to me. But we do everything to hide from ourselves and everyone else that we're aging. Sometimes I look at myself in the mirror. Now, in my mind, I still see 18-year-old James, but I look in the mirror, that's not the guy that's there anymore. This guy has got some wrinkles. He's got these, my smile lines right here. And I've got crow's feet. And I furrow my brow too much. So I have wrinkles on my forehead. I, you know, my face is a little saggy. And I've got a little goozle down here, whatever it's called. It's just part of my aging. I know that that. I'm not going to try to hide that anymore. It's just part of being alive. But we do, as Americans, everything humanly possible to hide death from ourselves. There was a time over a century ago where people were expected to die at home. And family was around them when they died. They didn't die alone. They died with others there. They were prepared at home. You didn't pay somebody down the street to do all the work to put, you, uh, to put you in the ground. You prepared. You washed the body. You know, it's a very stark thing. If you've never watched Places in the Heart, Places in the Heart is a powerful, powerful movie with a lot of subtext. But there's a person who dies in the movie. I won't give anything else away. They die. And the family brings him home. They clear off the dining table and lay his body there and carefully undress him and carefully wash him and carefully redress him. Death is not far away from those folks. We hide it. We hide it away in funeral homes and in somewhere else besides at the house. We hide it away from ourselves. Death is coming. Death is coming. So what else might this centurion have seen in a man who was prepared to die? There was no begging, no pleading, he let go. He let go and made that next step into the next world. Truly, this is God's 
son. Truly, this is God's son. You know, our, our Buddhist sisters and brothers have uh, a practice. They, they spend time meditating on their impermanence, which is another word for death. The fact that this manifestation of me, I don't know how long it's going to last. It's lasted 58 and a half years now. That's, that's, I've gotten, you know, got some pretty good wear and tear out of the body. Some, some of it I probably should have taken care of a little better. You know, I would probably have a few less aches and pains if I had done a few things. I might have a few less wrinkles if I hadn't, you know, put on too much weight a couple of times, overstretched it, and my skin won't stretch back into its normal space. I don't know. But the bottom line is, I have made it my policy, my practice, not so much my policy, my practice to regularly sit in my chair with my eyes fixed on the crucifix in front of my chair and to ponder my impermanence. Now let me tell you what that does for me. It reminds me that I don't have forever to get everything done in this manifestation, in this body. I don't have forever to do the work God has given me. So I've got to figure that out and be sure I'm doing it. It's very important. If you think there is an end to this person at some point in this form here, then it makes me take seriously every breath I take. Every breath I take is a gift. Every word that I say to somebody what if that's the last word I say? Do I want it to be said in anger? What happens if you scream an ugly thing at the person who cuts you off in traffic? You have a heart attack and die right there in traffic in your car. That's your last impression of this life? So as I ponder my death, I think this could be the last breath I take right now. And to me, it's not morbid at all. It invites me to take seriously the gift that life is for as long as I have it. And to remember that my gift of life is unique, just like your gift of life is unique. You are infinitely precious and unconditionally loved. I got it in. You wondered if I'd fit it into worship today. Yep, you are infinitely precious and unconditionally loved. You hold a place in this universe that no one else can hold. You bring a voice to this universe that no one else can speak. You bring a gift that no one else can give, that God gave you to give. Are you going to give it? Are you going to share it? Or are you going to get caught in the distractions? Let me tell you, you can pursue all sorts of things in life. You can pursue piles and piles of money or big titles. Or if you're a pastor, you can pursue bigger churches. I don't know what a bigger church is. You know, one with millions of members that would know who I am, and I wouldn't have an idea under God's green earth who any of them were. I would just have to trust that God knew them and a couple of their friends who came to church with them. Uh, it makes me question what is most important in this life. And it's not the accumulation of stuff, the most stuff that I can have before I die. That's not the purpose of life. It's to see how much I can give away in this life. 
of the gifts I've received, what can I give away? When I breathe in, what positive thing am I going to breathe out into the world? How am I going to help to carry the struggles and the pains, the suffering of this world? How am I going to help to carry that? Is it going to be by putting more suffering out into the world? Or is it going to be by being more loving, more hopeful, more positive? I think when the centurion looked at Jesus breathing his last and could say, truly this is God's son, he saw someone who did all he could do until his very last breath. So that when he gave up his breath, he had done all he could do in that physical manifestation. He could have done more if somebody hadn't killed him. But he did as much as he could do. He was at peace and he let go. He recognized himself as part of something bigger than him. And that's us. We are all part of something bigger than what we are. Not only are we infinitely precious, unique as the place as the holders of the places we've been given and unconditionally loved, but we're part of a bigger story than just my story. For years, and I still sometimes do, think of my life as the James, the, the, the James show. You all play walk-on parts, appear periodically in there. It's not the James show. It's not. It's the God show. And I'm a walk-on part. And you know what? It's exciting to be a walk-on. It's exciting for however long I'm on the walk-on part, I'm going to do my best to look the part. And not just look the part, to be the part. To be the part God saw me to be. I don't always live up to it. In my worst moments, it's the James show again. It's all about me. It's all about what you can do for me and how I can be, feel better about me. And look at me, look at me, look at me. But in the end, what I really want in my best moments is when you look at me, not to see me, but to see me mirroring the love of God in a way that touches your life. And when you look at you, when others look at you, don't you want to be that mirror? Now, you don't, you, we're not going to mirror it the same way I do. You're not going to get yourself a pair of black jeans and black shoes and a black shirt that says St. James on it and start walking around and try to be me because you wouldn't be me. You couldn't be me. And you wouldn't want to be me because you weren't made to be me. You were made to be you. And that's a wonderful, wonderful, amazing gift. The centurion saw a unique man, not just another body hanging on a cross, Truly, this was God's son. Truly, this man was God's son. You know, when I talk to you, I'm talking to the sons and daughters of God. Called to live in such a way and to die to self in such a way that when we die, others will say, truly, this was a son of God. Truly, this was a daughter of God. Now, that's not how we talk these days. 
it's probably unlikely that someone's going to say about us, oh, truly, that was God's son. Truly, that was God's daughter. But maybe they'll say, wow, I'm going to miss the love of God that came through X, Y. I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss them. But you know what? They inspired me to be this. When I think about death, and this is my final word for today, when I think about death, I think about funerals. And I've done a lot in my 34 years of appointment and two years on a staff. I've done a lot of funerals. And when I am the speaker at that funeral, let me tell you what I think my job is. It is to find the good news that that person uniquely preached and share it with those who gather. What was the good news that they preached with their lives? And I don't mean got up on stage and read the Bible and preached. I mean, when you looked at them, what did you see? What did you see? Was it their humor? Was it their love? Was it their encouragement? Did they love plants the way God does? Whatever. What good news did they preach? So as your exercise in non-permanence this week, or impermanence, I want to invite you to think for yourself, what good news has my life preached so far? And what good news am I meant to preach that maybe I've been avoiding preaching it, thinking I'll have time next week? And how can I begin to preach that good news now? I think it's worth asking. I think it's worth answering, and then it's worth doing. 